Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are continuing in the pastoral epistle series, and we are reading this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. Our scripture reading on our last sermon in this series included verses 8 through 14. I simply did not get to them. Uh, so I, I don't want to skip over these verses because they are rich and there's so much here that I wanted to unpack and, and show. Uh, so we're just going to go back and read these. Even though we read them in, in the last sermon, uh, we did not get to these verses. So Paul is writing to his son in the gospel. Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. He's likely pastoring. He's like over the house churches. People would meet in homes. So Timothy is the overseer in Ephesus over these house churches. And Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus, or maybe we'd say the bishop over these house churches. This is Paul writing to Timothy, giving pastoral advice uh, that is applicable to the people in the church. So this is, this is pastoral in nature. This is why we call them the pastoral epistles. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began." and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, these few words that we have read, they are God-breathed, divinely inspired. And while they were not written directly to us, Uh, They were written for our admonition and our edification. And we take the words that Paul writes to Timothy to heart as words that are our words today, that are part of God-breathed Scripture. Lord, and I pray in these next few moments of time that the operation and work of the Holy Spirit would be in this place to open up our eyes, reveal truth to us, open up our understanding, and help us to see you as sovereign overall, in charge of every detail of our lives. I ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Karl Barth, who was one of the greatest minds in Christianity in the 20th century, was very influential and I have no doubt used by God to pull all of Christianity away from where a lot of it had moved in the 1800s and pull it back to an understanding of the divinity of Christ, a high view of Scripture, and so on. Uh, 
Karl Barth wrote in just one of his books or a series of books called Church Dogmatics. Karl Barth, his Church Dogmatics, he writes six million words. John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the leading and most influential texts in all of Christianity, is roughly 500,000 words. My name will never be in the ranks of those men, but I figure blogs, articles, sermon manuscripts that I've written around a million words related to ministry. Six million, Calvin no doubt millions of words. The Apostle Paul, he writes 33,000 words. Now he no doubt wrote more than that, but we have record of 33,000 of his words. He didn't write a lot. He wasn't writing books, he was writing letters. If we started reading Paul's writings today, start to finish, if we all took turns reading, and we read slower than the average reader, so we were careful, we would be done with all of Paul's writings by 1.30. Millions of words have been penned about what Paul writes, but Paul himself, it's about three hours at the most to re read everything that Paul writes. But what Paul does is Paul writes very thick. <clears throat> now I've read books, especially the last couple years, I've picked up books that I did not finish because they were very thin. Uh, there, there's a saying that everybody has a book inside of them and for most people it should stay there. And I've read some books and thought, uh, you must know somebody at this publishing house because you're probably a great person but uh, you're not a writer. <clears throat> Paul writes very thick. He says a lot in a few words. His ideas are layered and they're intertwined and uh, he makes us think. He makes us stop and, and meditate and ponder and wonder. And if you just read scripture, not just Paul, but scripture, and you just read it without really thinking about what's being said, um, you're going to miss a lot. There's a lot said there in scripture. The text we read today is short, but the amount of truth and revelation and understanding in less than 200 words that we read today uh, there's a lifetime of God's glory just in those couple hundred words. So Paul writes in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now the word therefore, anytime you see that word therefore, it's referring to something before. So what is he referring to? He's referring to what we preached about last time where he says, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed of the Lord or Paul his prisoner because he has not given you a spirit of fear. That's, that's what he's telling Timothy is don't be ashamed because for Paul in this verse you have one of two options. You can either be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus or you can share in the suffering of the gospel. That's your two options. You can't do both. Now Paul's using that word ashamed 
It was a shameful thing in his day to be associated, to have your name associated with a man who was considered by almost all of society who knew about Jesus to be a common criminal who was executed by the state. To nearly everyone alive during the time of the Messiah, Jesus was not considered the Messiah. He's this normal, ordinary guy. His dad was a carpenter. He was a builder. Jesus probably spent the majority of his life working a blue-collar building, stonemason type job. And those last three, three and a half years, he claims to be the Son of God. And, uh, of course, that's a crime in Jewish religion because he's blasphemed the name of God and so he's executed by the powers that are in control, the Roman government. And, you know, you think about the ministry of Jesus, it's not that long. It's like, you know, five years ago we didn't know who this guy was, today he's dead. His followers say he rose from the dead. We really know they probably stole his body so they could say that. It was scandalous. I mean, it was scandalous because, remember, Christianity does not exist. To be a believer in the one true and living God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, means that you, you are a Jew, you're a practicing Jew. And it's just scandalous to follow the teachings of this man because now he's gone. We don't know where he's at. They probably took his body and buried it somewhere, but now they're following his teachings. And he told them to do some things that they're doing, and... It's a mess. It's scandalous. It's shameful. That's what it meant to be a Christian in Paul's day. Now, it's hard for us to think of Jesus this way because we don't think of Jesus this way. To us, He is the Son of God, fully divine, included in the divine identity of Yahweh, the one true and living God. He exists before time and outside of time and was made incarnate in the flesh within time for the sake of our salvation. To be identified with Jesus was to be shamed by your entire culture. But to fail to identify with Jesus was to reject Jesus and to be ashamed of Him. There was no middle ground. This is why Paul can cry out in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, there was a time, and this is still geographically dependent within the United States, but there was a time in our nation where it was broadly accepted to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. Uh, There is obviously a growing resistance within our nation to accept people for being Christian. Uh, Never mind, I'm not even getting particular here. I'm talking about anything that falls under the heading of Christian, simply the affirmation that the Bible is true and guides our lives in all areas, that idea is out of fashion. Religious attendance, and this is just by Gallup, the people who do all the polls, they've been doing the same poll for decades. And religious attendance of any kind, again a broad heading, it peaked from about 1955 to 1958. That's when the most people went to church in America. From 1958, if you look at the chart, from 1958 to 1972, it's just a straight line down and a decline. In 1972, it levels off, and from 1972 to 2010, 
it's a fairly even line. There's this even line and it goes a couple points up and a couple points down, but it, it looks like a stock market chart. It just, you know, but it's averaged, it's steady. 72 to 2010, it's just the same amount of church attendance by percentage of people in the United States. In 2010, whatever happened, for whatever reason, in 2010 to today in 2023, it has been a steady decline. It just keeps going down and down and down and down. There has been, for the first time in 2023, there's a little bit of an increase simply because obviously during COVID, those numbers actually bottomed out. So there has been a little bit of a bounce back from that. But regardless, fewer people go to church today, regularly attend service today as part of their lives it is becoming less and less common. There are a lot of churches that are shuttering their doors, closing, shutting down. I hear it all the time, churches that close. Now, I grew up in a town where, in a town of 6,000 people, I counted them one time, there were 26 churches in our zip code, not counting churches that you could attend driving 10 or 15 minutes away. In a town of 6,000 people, there were 26 churches. I know this because I got out the phone book 20 years ago and I counted them and I wrote them down. I had this list. I'm like, I didn't know, but there are 26 churches. I, I don't know what that number is there today, but I do know that growing up that churches uh, or, or the school district did not have events like basketball games and things like this on Wednesday night because several churches in the town still had church on Wednesday night. Probably what was the largest church in the community. and kind of one of the most influential, a lot of school-related people would attend there. Um, they had church on Wednesday night, so you just did not have that. I, I talked to somebody recently that told me, they said, yeah, it was, it was that way in my town growing up. The, there were no school events on Wednesday nights. That would be unheard of today in the school district to, to make that concession. Now, I'm not here to paint a negative picture because there are far far more Christians, percentage-wise, in the United States today than there were in the entire Roman Empire in the first century. In Paul's day, there is far less than 1%. I've read anything from 0.2 to 0.7, nobody really knows, but just best guesstimates, anywhere from 0.2 to 0.7%, and I think 0.7 is probably optimistic, of people who identified as people who believed in Jesus. There are no denominations yet. It's just people that follow Christ. And that increases, second century, third century. You start, to get, you start to get an increase. But in Paul's day, and that's what we're focusing on, the first century, almost everybody was not a Christian. I mean, the idea there is, you know, it, you could go out and probably not find anybody who believed what you believe. That's, I'm not painting a negative picture because these realities open up all kinds of possibilities for churches to reach people with the gospel. I would argue that part of the reason in the United States that the decline has happened is because there has been a failure on the part of the church to do and have church the way that God had prescribed in Scripture. So all of this circles back to say, what Paul is telling us, and that that is we are called to suffer for the gospel. There are no biblical guarantees of, of a believer's safety or comfort. 
It's quite the opposite. We're pretty much guaranteed if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer some things. Are we not ashamed of Jesus to the extent that we're willing to go to prison for the message of the gospel? I've met people personally who have spent years in prison uh, for simply preaching Jesus. There's people today sitting in prison around the world for preaching who Jesus is. In verse 9, Paul says, who saved us, and here's where he starts, he starts kind of writing thick and it's easy to miss things. So he, who is, is, is God? He does two things. He saved us, number one, and called us, number two, to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave to us in Christ before the ages began. So a lot going on in verse 9. So if you are saved by God, then you are also called by God to a high and holy calling. That's Paul's message here. If you are saved, you have a calling on your life. Now, I do believe that there are men and I'll point to the scripture that's coming up of why I would say this is truth. I do believe that there are men who are called into the fivefold ministry. So we get this from Ephesians 4, that he gives some apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. There are certainly more areas of ministry, but that's five particular ones in Ephesians that he gives. He gave some apostles, some prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. So I do believe that there are men called into a fivefold ministry and that there are men that are called to preach. And those aren't necessarily one and the same. The, the call to preach is not in any way a superior calling in any way, shape, or form. It is a more public-facing calling. It is not a superior calling. I'm not denying that there are people who have particular callings that may or may not involve preaching. Uh, I would argue that strongly, that God calls people to ministry who in some areas have been way more effective in their ministry than men who stood in the pulpit for 30 years. There are pastor elders, and I get this from the writings of Paul elsewhere, there are pastor elders within churches who are called to lead and called to shepherd, called to pastor, who may never one time darken the pulpit. I had lunch with a man this week. I'd never met him. We met for lunch for the first time. He spent several years in full-time ministry. Um, consider him a pastor. And it wasn't until we were standing outside that he told me, I'm not a preacher in the sense, I, I don't, I'm not a pulpit preacher. It's not what I do. But he shepherded, he's discipled, led lots of people within the church. But didn't stand behind the pulpit. So there are elders, elders, pastors are interchangeable in Scripture. It's one and the same. There are elders who preach. There are elders who do not preach. The call to preach is not a superior calling. It is a unique, it is a distinct calling. It is not superior. Because pastors, preachers, are servant leaders. They are not C-level religious executives. I've met some who I think think they are, but that's not the calling. The call to ministry is not to have a big corner office, get to wear a suit all the time, um, and be lauded in front of people. 
That's not the calling. That idea would have been foreign in Scripture. To pastor, to minister, to do anything in ministry is to serve. So we ask the question for all of us, what, what, what am I called to do in the kingdom? What am I called to do in the local church? Everybody has a calling and, and God may use you in the strength of your giftings. And in some areas, I hope that's true. It doesn't matter how much I feel called to sing a solo in church, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. It probably would not be edifying if I sing. So people who sing ought to be able to have, at least be able to carry a, a tune. Um, there are other areas uh, in, in ministry where you probably want to be gifted in that. If, if a person is going to operate in an administrative function in a church and that's needed, they probably need to have some administrative abilities. You don't want somebody running church finances that, that can't balance a checkbook. So yes, there are areas of ministry that God needs to utilize people's strengths. But the flip side of that is God may use you in your weakness so you can't claim any of the credit. God said no flesh is going to glory in my presence. So God might use you in an area of weakness so that when His name is glorified, you know that couldn't have been me. I'm not very good at that, but God used me in my area of weakness. I can think of two preachers right now, just off the top of my head, that have severe speech impediments. Don't talk very well. And Oh, God used them mightily. God used them so mightily. One of them, one of the most um, that was well-known, that became, uh, I know he was interviewed on Focus on the Family and had made a name for himself, was a man named Alan Oggs. And um, he had a, I don't know exactly what it was, it was a sort of a disability um, that, uh, that was very apparent when you talked to him and in the pulpit. Um, but oh, how God used him mightily. It was apparent that there was something wrong. He loved, he loved. His hobby was landscaping his yard. He just had this beautiful yard outside, and he would just get that grass so perfect and the, the flowers and everything. And one day, one of the neighbors came uh, up to his daughter. She said, I just think it's so wonderful that you let a guy like that um, work outside and do your yard. Said, who is he? And daughter said, well, I call him dad, um, you know, but God uses people in their weakness. However, in this instance, I do not take Paul's words to mean that you need to find your particular calling. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. And the reason why is the phrase, three letters, the phrase is a holy calling. It's singular. The implication is that it applies to all of us. It is a calling, a singular calling, that resides within every single person who is saved. God saved us, past tense, and He called us with a holy calling. Now, it's, this phrase is a little, little foggy in the translation. It's a holy calling. It looks like that the calling is a holy calling, like that word is describing the calling, and that is true. But what it actually is... It is a call to holiness. That's what the call is. 
It is a holy calling, meaning it is a call by God for you to be holy. So he saves us and he calls us to holiness. This makes sense because this follows the pattern of the entire New Testament. The entire New Testament is God saves us and then he calls us to holiness. Like, I think that could be a good summation of the, Old, of the New Testament. Salvation, justification, sanctification. Justification is that first part. It's the act of God saving us. God sovereignly calls us from death to life, and He causes us to be born again. 1 Peter 1.3, according to His great mercy. So you're born again because of the mercy of God. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. That's why I go back and say, and I, I, I repeat other men who have said this. I did not originally say this phrase. But if I get to eternal life and I stand before Jesus and He says, why do you think you're here? I'm certainly not going to start this response with the word I. Well, I, no, I, I, nothing. You, in your great mercy, caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our response to that call is saving faith. My sins were paid for on the cross of Calvary. God imputes His righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is imputed upon me. It is a transaction. Christ takes my sins upon His body, and in turn He imputes His righteousness upon me. It is the greatest exchange in the history of the universe. And He does this so that I can now be in right standing with God. This is what justification is. It is God's declaration of my innocence upon the basis of the work of Christ upon the cross. Justification causes God to be for me and not against me. When Paul cries out, if God be for us, who could be against us? He's not talking about God's just on your side. The conversation there is in the context of justification. God was against me. God was hardcore against me because I was a sinner and my sin was going to be judged through eternal damnation of hell fire. And now because of justification, God says, no, I'm now for you. You're innocent of all of that. You stand in the courtroom of the universe, God sitting behind the bench and he says, not guilty. That gives us peace with God. Paul would cry out Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. I am adopted by God to be heirs with God, to be joint heirs with Christ. Justification. And then there's that three-word phrase, a holy calling. And that's after that justification, that's when that starts. It's God saying, okay, now for the rest of your life, you have a calling on your life to be holy. I am not holy because I'm perfect. I'm holy because I have His divine nature in me, which is spirit and light that dwells within me. And I am holy the same way that I am righteous, by proxy. A, it is a dreadful shame that people live under condemnation. They feel damned and condemned, not sure if they're saved because they had a bad day. Because their salvation they think God works on one of those turnstile doors. He just kind of goes in and out of your heart depending on what kind of day you had. Well, I hope I catch, uh, you know, I hope if I go out today in a fiery car crash, I hope it's on a good day where I had all my ducks in a row because I don't know where I'm at. No, no, no. He called us to a life of holiness as an effort 
our response is right living, right works, but it's not out in an effort, it's not in an effort to be saved, it is an effort to show our gratefulness for what he's done for us in justification. It's the call to holiness that is worked out practically in our everyday lives on Tuesday mornings on the job, on Thursday evenings at home, as we are transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We are beholding the glory of God with unveiled faces and we are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. It's just incremental. I'm just constantly, a little more each day, becoming more like Jesus. And this was all given to us, Paul said, not because of our works. Paul's excluding works. Can't do it on your own. Can't earn your salvation. Don't even try. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, now notice this phrase, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When was this given to you? King James, before the world began. Another more literal translation before time began, ESV, before the ages began. It's all the same idea. It's before anything existed. Go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Before then, whatever's before then, I don't know what that was. It's all of eternity because God has never not existed. We can't wrap our minds around that. There was a time when there was only God. There was nothing that was created. And in that time, before the ages began, he purposed to give us the salvation and this holy calling. That is a glorious truth. He saved us and he called us to holiness in Christ before time itself began. When you were lost, now I think this is, this is all of us, when you were lost and without God, think of a time when you didn't know God. You didn't know this fact but it was already purposed by God to grant you salvation and holiness. And it was granted to you before time began. That's what Paul's teaching. That's mind-blowing. That is comforting. When I didn't know God, when God was nowhere in my thoughts, maybe I didn't even know if a God existed, but God says, I have purposed something before the foundation of the world, your salvation and your holiness I don't understand it, I just accept it because the book says it. That means that you are not here by mistake, you are not here by happenstance, you are not here by coincidence, and this ought to create within every single one of us an outpouring of thanksgiving unto God, an attitude of awe in light of His glory and grace. Then he says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, I want you to see the contrast between verse 9 and verse 10. Verse 9 is in the past. I mean, how much more in the past can you get than before time began? I think that's in the past. It's like, that's a long time ago and then, then some. In eternity past... That's verse 9, and Paul is leaping infinite amount of time. I mean, if that's true, we could say trillions and trillions and trillions of years times trillions of years and put an infinite number of zeros behind it because there's no limit to how far back you can go into eternity. Before anything was, God was. And that far back in the past, in one verse, 
Paul leapfrogs all of eternity and lands to today and goes. Now in verse 10, and he uses the word now, and which now. So verse 9, eternity passed. Verse 10, he just leapfrogged infinite time and goes, and now these things have been manifested. In the present, as we live and breathe and exist, these gifts of salvation and holiness, another translation instead of, of, of the gifts, it uses the word granted. It's like he grants. It is a grant that is given to us of salvation and holiness. They've been waiting in storage for eons of time in the wings, and now they are made manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. I think that's what Paul's trying to get us to see is it's all about Jesus. We exist to serve King Jesus. Like your purpose in life is to serve King Jesus. We exist to declare the glory and righteousness and justice and grace of King Jesus. Christ Jesus or Messiah Jesus. So if you see, it's, he doesn't say Jesus Christ. He's, he, that is reversed. It's Christ Jesus in both verse 9 and verse 10. It's that way in our translations. You go back to the original in the Greek, it's that way. It's Christ Jesus. He's writing that as a descriptive word for who Jesus is. It's the Christ. It's the anointed one. It's the Messiah. He's elevating Jesus through this title. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's Messiah Jesus. So in verse 9, Messiah Jesus is in eternity. Verse 10, Messiah Jesus is in the incarnation. And the gifts that we're waiting in the wings are revealed to us as Jesus is revealed to us. You don't get the manifestation of the gifts of salvation and holiness without the manifestation of the Son of God incarnate in the flesh. Like, I, I used, to, used to hear a preacher who would kind of say it tongue-in-cheek and say, thank God for Jesus. And then I heard J.T. Pugh say it as serious as a heart attack. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Because without the incarnation of Jesus, who is the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, is incarnate inside a body in the New Testament. We call him Jesus Christ. Like, I... I I don't think a person can be a Christian if they don't believe that. I think it's that serious that you understand who Jesus is. The absolute incarnation of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. The Yahweh of the Old Testament in Christ. He exists in the incarnation and the gifts that were waiting in the wings are revealed to us as Jesus is revealed to us. You could say it this way, like really simplify it and say this. There is no salvation and there is no holiness without Jesus. That's simple. Salvation and holiness can't exist without Jesus Christ. I was writing this sermon and the old song came to me. I haven't thought about it in so many years. It says, He is my everything. He is my all. He is my everything, both great and small. He gave His life for me and made everything new. He is my everything. Now, friend, how about you? Oh, how I want us to really believe and see this truth. If my holiness is a gift that was given in Christ Jesus before time began, and if my holiness is an ongoing process, then my future holiness, that is, the transformation that is yet to come in my life, because I like to think that we're all pretty decent people. 
but we're not yet what God wants us to be in this life. Like there are levels of transformation that have yet to occur in the lives of every single one of us, myself included. If my holiness now was given to me by Jesus in eternity, then my future holiness in this life, the transformation that is yet to come has also been revealed from the foundation of the world. All my holiness was determined. That means that God has plans for me going forward from today on this July, was it 30th, 2023. He's like, son, I got a little more holiness for you. It's coming today and tomorrow and next week and next year. I've got some things for you that's going to make you more holy. It's going to make you more like me. I didn't just think of it before the foundation of the world, that high and holy calling, that call to holiness. You, if you are saved, you cannot lose. I mean, if, if Christ is in you, you just simply, you cannot lose. You can rest assured, if Christ is in me and I am in Him, like, I don't care what comes against me. I don't care what kind of hell and I'm using that literally. I don't care of what kind of spiritual darkness comes against me. I don't care what kind of financial difficulty. I don't care what kind of health catastrophe comes against me. I can't lose. And that's not possible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good and for those who were called according to His purpose. For those who He foreknew, this is Romans 8, but this whole idea, this foreknew, I see that reflected also in, in verse 9 in our text. Who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Join heirs with Christ. He uses that phrase elsewhere in Scripture. We're joint heirs. We're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. He makes Jesus our brother. And he does that here in verse 29. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justifies. And those whom he justified, he also glorifies. That final glorification is rooted in what he's talking about in verse 9. You are in process for the work of your final salvation that will come when you are glorified in your own death and resurrection. Because in verse 10, Jesus abolishes death. Paul said in verse 10, Jesus abolishes death and He brings life and immortality. You can't lose. It's not possible. I've, I, I downloaded this app. It's, a, it's got my, my stock market, it's got $10,000, and then you buy your stock. So I just go in there, and I'm like, eh, I think that looks like a good stock, and eh, I wonder, let's see what happens with this one, and I heard good things about that one. I'll spend $10,000 without thinking. The reason why is because it's a simulator. It's not real money. Everybody in the world can download the app and have $10,000 it's not real, and you simulate how the market's going to work. And so if you lose $10,000 in fake money, you don't care. You just hit the reset button and it goes back to $10,000. It's not real. It's a simulator to see what would happen. But 
if all of us had an app that we could invest all of our money in and invest it, and you knew that it was impossible for you to lose. Now, I know there's people out there that try to pitch that in the market, uh, snake oil, uh, because everything can be lost. But if you knew, I can invest this and I can't lose, would you do it? Of course you would. You'd, you'd put every penny you had into it. You'd do whatever you could because I can't lose. Well, there's nothing really in this life that, that is that real. Nothing is a sure thing in this life. Just about everything can be lost. But when it comes to our salvation and our holiness, you can't lose. It's not up to chance. It's not up to happenstance. It's not up to your works, your ability. You are secure in Christ. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. I take this idea, what I said earlier, that there are men who are called, appointed to preaching and leadership roles within the church. Yes, Verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. You want a surefire way to suffering? Let God appoint you to be a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, and then you'll suffer like Paul did. But I am not ashamed, for I know, and, and here I, I think this is probably the most important phrase in the sermon today. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What made Paul mighty in the faith was not only what he believed, but who he believed in. For Paul, theology was more than a doctrine. Theology was more than an old dusty book that was dead, dry, formal, boring, academic, not relevant, not practical to my everyday life. That's not what, what it was for Paul. It wasn't a statement of faith. It wasn't a confession. And you know how passionate I am about knowing Scripture, having right theology. Absolutely necessary. As we know Scripture, so we can know the character and nature of the author of the Scriptures. But for Paul, no. Paul said, I know not what I have believed. For Paul, all of this was a person. It was about Jesus. I know in whom I I know. I have confidence in whom I have believed. That's why Paul could do what he did. It was beyond head knowledge. It was a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our heart's cry must be Philippians 3.10, where Paul cries out that I may know him that I may know. I don't want to just know about Him. I want to know Him. We must be convinced, as Paul was convinced, that God is able to guard what has been entrusted to us. What would we do? How would we live? What risks would we take if we were convinced God was guarding and backing us up? Verse 13 final verses, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now Paul is incorporating the work of God through the Holy Spirit up to this point in this passage. He's been very Christ-centered and now he's engaging the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now, he tells us to guard the good 
deposit that has been entrusted to us. How? By the Holy Spirit within us. Notice the word who. The Holy Spirit is not an it, not a thing, not an object. The Holy Spirit is the person of God Himself. The Holy Spirit is a subsistence of God, the one true and living God that dwells, not only moves among us, but dwells with inside of us. That we see the action of the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit of God at work. I mean, I think we see the Holy Spirit at work in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God moves upon the face of the deep. So it's not like the Holy Spirit is absent in the Old Testament. There's only, there's only one God. There's only one Spirit. We see Him. But now in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's actions are a little different in that He dwells inside of us. The Old Testament, He moved among men and women. In the New Testament, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Notice that even though the Holy Spirit is active in guarding what God has given us, the command to guard it is not directed to the Holy Spirit. It's like, you don't have to do anything, the Holy Spirit's going to guard it for you. It's not what he said. He said, you, Timothy, you, Jeff, you guard it. The command, the charge is to the individual. The Holy Spirit's going to empower you to guard what has been entrusted, but you guard it. We guard it because there are other voices that will tell us other things that are not true. There is a proliferation of voices in our lives now, today, in the last few years, it's more possible for more voices to speak into our lives than ever before. <clears throat> I am aware, and so are all of my preacher pastor friends, because we talk about this, we get together and we talk about this, that the people who God has entrusted under our care have access to and are regularly listening to other preachers who are undoubtedly more gifted than we are. That is no secret. Uh, YouTube is a thing. Podcasts are a thing. And the thing is, I listen to those too. I, I listen to those same voices. I'm blessed by them. I'm, I'm helped by them. None of that is a replacement for the local church. I regularly hear pastors who are very well known say in sermons and especially podcasts, if you're looking to me, like if, I'm the, if I am the dominant voice in your life, you're wrong. You need to go find a local church. I can think of two, and not even just in my notes, just two people who I hear regularly say this. One of them is a Q&A podcast, and people will write into this podcast and, and ask this person these questions, and the, and the moderator and the preacher will regularly say, now, we're going to give you some input on this question. This is not a substitute for your local church. I have my list of people I listen to, sermons, podcasts, read their but we all have those voices. But I encourage you, I plead with you, use wisdom in who you are engaging. Ask the eternal, all-wise God who dwells within you through the Holy Spirit to grant you wisdom. And if you don't understand the biblical role of a shepherd, then the statement I'm getting ready to make will sound very arrogant, um, but you ask me because that's the role I fill, and some people here have. What do you think about this person? Have you heard of this person? Um, because 
were engaging voices. And I think rightfully so. You're going to get help. You're going to, get, you're going to see things from different angles. There's no issue with that at all. I hope people do it wisely. I do it. But I'm saying guard what has been entrusted to us. That doesn't mean that you don't have... Uh, that doesn't mean, guarding what has been entrusted does not mean that you have this theology that is static and locked and never involves, evolves. Like The thing that I plead with people all the time to do is lay down your presuppositions and believe what's in the text. And that's hard for us to do. So I'm not saying that we are closed-minded and we never... Uh, one of my best friends in ministry said, he said, I, I see things very differently than I did 20 years ago. And he said, I anticipate in 20 th- years from now, I'll see things differently then. Not, I'm talking about the eternal, unwavering, primary truths of the Bible. We guard those. They are not up for negotiation. I've watched people. I was recently assigned a book to read in a class I'm taking and my thing is if I get assigned a book I want to know who the author is so I start reading about the author go to the author's website I'm like this lady is so far out of bounds she's outside the stadium like there is nothing within any realm of orthodox Christianity that's going to accept what this woman is saying and you want a good section of this class? You want to, I mean, and, and here's the thing. I understand in classes like this, they intentionally give you assignments to engage people who don't think like you. That's part of education. You're going to be assigned, but this was further, and so I contacted the school, and I said, um, I said, I at least think you ought to have a disclaimer. This is so far out of bounds. I think you ought to have a disclaimer on this. Um, to say, we do not endorse the views of this person and we, we want you to read her book. And I told them some very specific things, quotes that she had said in the article, um, things like, statements like, I'm not orthodox within Christianity. I mean, she made a statement to that effect and, and other things. And, and the school came back and said, we didn't realize all of this. We, we knew she was kind of out there. We did not know. And so what I, I started going back and, and reading her history and what I realized is that at one time she did live and, and reside within, uh, I would say, a much more liberal camp than I would be comfortable in, but I th- don't think she was a heretic. I just wouldn't want to live there. But something happened. Some voices happened to her these last few years that moved her and evolved her to a place where nobody that I know within evangelical Protestant Christianity, and that's a broad heading, and I'm saying that no one would think she was inside that camp. What happened? She didn't guard. There were some non-negotiable, essential absolutes about God and His Word that she didn't guard. The more I understand the Bible, the more I allow the Bible to crush my own presuppositions. But I allow it to hold to the eternal truths as well. And Paul closes this section of his letter appealing to the Holy Spirit. That's how he closes this. His appeal is to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how he closes. And I'll do the same. Father, this morning as we
come to a, a close in this time together and this, uh, this preaching, this sermon. We are appealing to the work of the Holy Spirit to grant us wisdom to guard that good deposit that has been entrusted to us. We realize that there are things that people may disagree upon, but there are also eternal, unwavering, unnegotiable truths that we embrace. Lord, I ask you today that uh, you would help us this week, this year, in our lives to live out these few verses of Scripture that Paul writes to Timothy. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to holiness. There is no better life. Thank you for empowering us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Thank you for counting us before time began to be part of your kingdom and part of your people. Thank you today for the blessing that you've given to us. Now I ask you, Lord, that as we leave this place, what the kingdom needs now more than ever are people who are not ashamed, out loud, in public, to be Christ followers, to declare the truths of your word, the truths of your kingdom, that we may, with the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, reach a lost and dying world. Empower us this week. Go with us through the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We plead this morning, we plead with you that the Holy Spirit would be actively manifested, working in our lives in ways that when the world sees it, they know it's you. It is exceptional. It is something that only comes from on high. We ask you to grant us this divine favor for the kingdom's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.